You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. In connection with our sermon this morning, I would invite you to open your Bibles and to turn to Psalm 133. This is a song of ascents, a song that the people of God would sing as they made their yearly pilgrimage to Jerusalem. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It's like the precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Mount Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. And then if you would turn to the New Testament to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll begin reading at verse 11. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. But what we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it's for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our text this morning is Philippians chapter 4, the verses 2 through 9. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, Help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Brothers and sisters who are united together in Jesus Christ. The ideas, the themes of unity and peace often come together. The idea being that the one will bring about the other one. The war cry, if you want to call it that, of the communist revolution was unite. Unite. Marx and his followers wanted a utopia that would achieve a certain kind of peace. But it was a peace that was ultimately founded on opposition and disunity, one of constant struggle between the classes, between workers and bosses. It was a fractured unity. It wasn't a true one. And even the peace that it aimed for was a fractured peace. And there were tumultuous years when Marx and his followers and the communists were trying to achieve this peace, but we know how the story ends. We know that communism brought more war to the world than peace and has proven to be unworkable. And it doesn't bring the peace that it achieves. But still, the idea is out there that unity will bring peace. Many in our day see the world coming together by means of technology and the forces of globalization. And they hope that this might foster, might promote, might pave the way for a global peacefulness. The dream for many is closer than it ever has been before. But yet it is a dream. And some would say it's a diminishing dream. As we see that technology and globalization really also brings us closer together with our enemies and provides the context for just as much bloodshed, angst, and hatred as there ever was before. So is the dream of peace dead? Is the dream of unity dead? Does one even lead to the other? Can we have both? Well, in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul is talking about both. He's talking about unity, and he's talking about peace. And he exhorts us to pursue them both. But his method isn't one that reaches to the furthest corners of the globe and begins with global implications. No, not at all, actually. It starts very small. It starts with two sisters. Two sisters in the Lord who are disagreeing with each other and who are urged to reconcile with each other. And then it moves from there to a small, seemingly insignificant group of people that meet together at least once a week in Philippi, usually on Sunday, on the first day of the week. And they're exhorted together to pursue joy and gentleness and prayer. The result of this, however, is anything but small, even though it's a small group and it's a small beginning. We know that it ultimately does result in peace. And not a sort of temporal, tentative, 
treaty-bound peace. It ends in peace with God, which transcends all understanding. And it comes from the giver of peace Himself, the God of peace. The God who has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to bring peace on earth. And so our theme this morning is that unity brings peace. Unity does bring peace. We'll see, going through our text, unity between sisters, Euodia and Syntyche. We'll see that they're urged to unity of heart. And then also, thirdly, unity of head and hand. So unity brings peace. First of all, then, unity between sisters. We've been looking at this book of Philippians for quite some time. And if there's anything about this book of Philippians that I hope you remember, it's that it's about unity. Unity with Christ. Unity in Christ. Unity as a congregation. Unity as believers. Paul is calling for and he's reminding of and he is encouraging in unity. Unity is central to Paul's message in this book and it's hard to miss. But it's not hard, however, to miss what kind of unity Paul's talking about. Yet, in these verses, in chapter 4, we get an idea of what this sort of unity means for the Apostle Paul. The two characters here are Euodia and Syntyche. They're probably fairly prominent women in the congregation of Philippi. As Paul says in verse 3, that they helped him, they contended at his side in the cause of the gospel. Other than that, we know very little about them. Other than the fact that they had a fight. They had some sort of disagreement, and it must have been fairly significant, and these women aren't getting along. And perhaps there were sort of groups forming in the church, Euodia's side and Syntyche's side. People were taking sides in the argument. Well, Paul wants these women to reconcile, and he asks for the help of of his loyal yoke fellow. You can see that in verse 3. That's probably Epaphroditus, the guy who, who was charged with bringing this letter to the Philippians. Probably him, although we don't know for sure. But he asks for help because it's so important that these women unite, that they reconcile. Disagreements happen in the church. Arguments happen. Disunity happens. Even very public and hurtful disagreements happen. Yet Paul is very passionate. He's very strong in his appeal that this would not be, that this would change. It may be that there are fights and disagreements and arguments, but we shouldn't be content to let them stay there especially if it's causing a rift in the community of believers. Paul urges them, it says, I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche. I plead with the sisters to get along. And he enlists the help of others to bring that about, to help them agree with each other in the Lord, to agree with each other in the Lord. Those That same word, that same expression has come up earlier in the book, When Paul said, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, then be like-minded. 
And then he also urged the Philippians to have the same mind as Jesus Christ. And now here in chapter 4, he's telling Euodia and Syntyche, like I urged you before, put into practice. Have the same mind as Christ. Get along. Think the same way. So Paul is urging these sisters to get along for the sake of Jesus Christ. He urges them to reconcile because they're sisters in Christ. They've both been into drawn, been drawn into fellowship with Christ. They're one with Christ. They're one with Christ, and so they're one in Christ. They've both recognized and embraced the blood of Jesus Christ to forgive them from their sins, to give up themselves and to pursue serving Him. And they've committed themselves to do that along with all others who do that, to following Christ's example and command to love. Do you see how important this unity is and how it's to be pursued? It's nothing less than unity in Christ. It's not simply that we have to get along or else we're going to have problems down the road. It's that we have to get along because we are united together by faith in Christ. It's the way of the new kingdom into which we've been called. We can't be content to allow our relationships to to fall apart. and We can't allow disunity to fester in this church especially not within our church here. Unity isn't only an ideal to be pursued on the grand scale between churches and federations, churches in different countries. Unity begins right here, right among us, right among brothers and sisters in the Lord. Unity begins between you and your neighbor, between you and your wife, between you and your friend, between you and your son or your daughter. This appeal to Euodia and Syntyche is really just an immediate application of what Paul has been talking about throughout this whole letter. He's been speaking about union with Christ. Well, having lots of plans and ideals of seeing churches grow together are good. We can think about those things and rejoice that throughout the world we might have greater unity as a church. But what does unity mean for us on the ground, right where we are today? Is the unity of a church a priority for us? Consider someone in our church who's not getting along with another person right now. It could be a family member, a friend, or someone else. Is it okay to stay this way? Will you let disunity prevail? Paul calls on us to be reconciled to each other because we've been reconciled to God. If we are united to Christ, then we must pursue unity as brothers and sisters. It's it's a command. It has to be because Christ has drawn us together. Since we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, let us seek peace with each other for the sake of Christ. So we see the unity between sisters and that they're urged to come together 
And so I urge you too to come together in the Lord. Paul also talks about unity in the heart. The theme of unity really continues in chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. And I would just like to say that I'm not making that up. If you read those verses, however, you might become a little skeptical. You read through there and you say to yourself, it doesn't say anything about unity at all. It doesn't talk about being united with Christ. It doesn't talk about being united with each other. How is it that this is still talking about unity? Well, let me explain this by way of a little story. I once heard of a, a man who was leading a Bible study, and he was recounting how Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, is one of his favorite verses. Rejoice in the Lord always, and I say it again, rejoice. And he thought he would get a common response from everyone else around the table when someone spoke up and said, why are those your favorite verses? I don't like those verses. They're burdensome. I don't always feel like rejoicing. I can't always rejoice. I have pain in my life. I have hardship. Yet that verse tells me to do exactly what I cannot do. It's a weight around my neck. Perhaps you felt that way about those verses there in Philippians 4. Can you imagine someone coming to you at a funeral and saying, I've got just the text for you. Rejoice in the Lord always, and I say it again, rejoice. Is that what Paul means when he says, at all times, rejoice in the Lord? Well, in order to understand these words, we need to understand that what sits behind these words is Paul's call to unity in the church. And that means that Paul isn't talking to individual, isolated believers when he says these words, but that he's talking to a congregation. He's talking to the body of believers. It doesn't mean that you individually have to buck up and put on a happy face at all times. But that as a church, as a congregation, we're always helping each other to rejoice. And we're always pointing each other to the Lord, the source of our joy. And ironically, that means that you're probably not going to come to someone at a funeral and tell them this verse. You're probably better off showing them a verse that speaks to the pain that they're experiencing, speaks to the reality of death, and then will point them in hope to Jesus Christ who has overcome death to consider His work, but to acknowledge the reality of the pain that we still feel this side of glory. And so unity undergirds these words. It supports and it helps joy. And that joy is always in the Lord. And that too helps us to understand these verses. We're not talking about some sort of happy, clappy, paint on a smile and pretend everything is all right as you dance through life kind of joy. That's not joy. This joy might not even be expressed in a laugh or, or a smile or even a jovial spirit. It's a joy that sits well below the surface. It's a joy that is in the Lord. It means this joy is produced by, by reflecting and comprehending and believing in what Jesus Christ has done for you. It's a deep-seated joy. 
It's a stabilizing kind of joy. Paul wants us all to be united and to build each other up in that kind of joy. Joy in the Lord. Paul also wants us believers to be united in gentleness. Let your gentleness be evident to all. And this gentleness, just like unity, is grounded in Jesus Christ. A famous New Testament scholar has has described this gentleness this way, that it, it knows how to give way graciously and does not insist on one's own rights. It knows how to give way graciously and does not insist on one's own rights. Well, this is a countercultural virtue, don't you think? Knows how to give way? Doesn't insist on one's own rights? This isn't a natural way of reacting to things, but this is the Christ-like way. This is the gentleness of Jesus Christ, who will not break a bruised reed, and who will not snuff out a smoldering wick. Was our Lord not tender and compassionate with those who suffered pain and rejection? Did our Lord not turn the other cheek even as his enemies beat him and mocked him? This gentleness of Jesus Christ is what the Apostle Paul himself sought to emulate in his life. He says in 2 Corinthians 10, By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. But again, we need to remember that this directive is for the whole congregation. Not only should you all be characterized by gentleness in your interactions, but gentleness, the gentleness of this congregation, let it be evident to all. It is the power of Jesus Christ at work in us. When those who interact with us and come into our fellowship can say, Gentleness is evident in that church. Would the name of Jesus Christ not be praised among us? And people can say that about us. And then Paul follows up this appeal to gentleness with those short but powerful words, The Lord is near. Jesus Christ is near you. The one to whom you are united, the one through whom your joy and your gentleness comes, is near. The psalmist says in Psalm 145, The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. The Lord's nearness provides the the confidence that we need for our walk of obedience. We're not united to a Savior who's far away or distant or remote. We are united to a Savior who's near to us, who dwells in our hearts by His Spirit, who hears our prayers, and who hears and comforts and stills all those who call on Him. The Lord is near. And then this leads very naturally to the third exhortation in those verses 4 through 7. Rejoice, let your gentleness be evident, and pray. He wants the congregation to be united in prayer. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Now this is another one of those verses that can easily be misunderstood. One way that you can misunderstand this is you think that Paul is giving you a sharp, don't be anxious. Oh, you're anxious? Stop that. Don't do it. But that's not what Paul's saying at all. He's not talking about a momentary decision. He's talking about a process. 
He's saying as the anxiety builds up, as the worries come into your, your life, and the problems begin to loom large, then meet that with prayer, with petition, with thanksgiving. As the anxieties build, go to God. You see, the truth of that statement, don't be anxious, but present your request to God, it comes out in the practice of that. The truth of it is seen when you put that to work in your life, in regular and urgent prayer, to meet the challenges and the problems that come our way. Another way that we can misunderstand these words is by supposing that, again, it's addressed to individual believers, unconnected from others in our congregation. Now, it's not as though you're not supposed to pray by yourself. That's very important. But when Paul is writing this letter, he's urging the Philippians to come together in prayer, to be united in prayer. Promoting church unity not only means being reconciled to others, but it means coming together with those people, with your friend, with your family member, with your sister, child, father, brother and sister in Christ, your Bible study group, your meeting. Come together in prayer and offer your cares to God. I think as we, as a congregation, look toward another Bible study season, uh, when the Men's and women's and young people's society will meet together. As we look forward to be the beginning of gems and cadets and catechism and many other activities in the church, we need to remember these, the words of these verses here. We should consider spending time together rejoicing, showing gentleness to each other, and bringing our prayers before the Lord with thanksgiving. And when we do, Paul says that a singularly wonderful experience will happen to us. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God, it's a profound peace. It transcends understanding. It's rooted in that reconciliation that Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 5, the reconciliation made by Jesus Christ. Because He took our sins, we have peace with God. Who can understand the depths of the peace that Jesus Christ has brought to us in His atoning death and His work for us as He hears our prayers before the throne of God? It's a profound peace. It's also a protective peace. It will guard your hearts and your minds from the worries and the anxieties of life as you learn to rest in the protective care of King Jesus. So we are to be united in heart and to make that real in our congregation. We're also to be united in head and hand. You'll notice there are two commands given in the verses 8 through 9 as we come to the end of our text. As a congregation, we are to think about certain things. That's at the end of verse 8. And toward the end of verse 9, we are to put into practice certain things. So we as a congregation are to think about certain things. Well, what are these things? Well, if you look at that list there, whatever's true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, many have noticed that these words are words that Paul never uses anywhere else. And in fact, they're words that he seems to be borrowing from the popular philosophy, 
popular culture of the day. For example, Paul never elsewhere uses that word, whatever is admirable. But many of the philosophers did. Aristotle, Plato, many others. The word there is the word that they use for virtue. Whatever is virtuous. Think about such a thing. So why is Paul doing this? Well, he seems to be teaching us something about the things of the world and how we are to act as a congregation. He's pointing out to the Philippians that what was best out there in the world, even in the the philosophy of the pagans and in the entertainment of the popular culture, he's saying there are good things, true things, noble things that are being taught and discussed all around you. Contemplate those things. Nurture them as a congregation. You see, Paul's being very inclusive here. He's saying there are right and noble and true and pure and lovely and admirable things all around us. There are riches out there in the world, in our culture. As Christians, we can mine them. We can collect them. And we can share them together as a congregation. I'm not going to go through what all these words mean. They're quite self-explanatory, I think. But I want to emphasize what this means, what Paul is saying here. One is that he's urging the Philippians, as you come together as a congregation, and you're more and more united to each other in Jesus Christ, you need to avoid a ghetto mentality. You need to avoid only exclusively dealing with each other. Remember that Paul urged the Philippians to live as citizens of the gospel, and he told them that their citizenship is in heaven. When we talked about that, we found that that doesn't mean that you exist only in heaven and not here on earth, but that you bring heaven down to earth in all your interactions. Well, here Paul is saying something that further emphasizes that point. We're to reflect and, and to talk about the good things in this world and not to reject them outright. Certain elements of our culture are praiseworthy. And those are the things that we should be taking in. Another thing, however, is the flip side of that. And that is similar to what Paul said to the Ephesians when he said, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. That's a hard command to follow, isn't it? Because there's a lot of unwholesome talk that comes out of our mouths. It's just like they say, garbage in, garbage out. Well, the garbage is coming out because there's a lot of garbage out there. There's a lot of unwholesome stuff out there that we can take in. I'm not even talking about the really bad stuff. Pornography, extreme violence, things like that. I'm talking about lowbrow humor, pointless television shows, empty, mindless, trashy music, bad entertainment. Paul urges us together as a congregation to raise our standards and pursue the things that are not lowly, but that are true and noble and right and lovely. We can be thankful that such things do exist in our culture. We, We have lovely art and pure entertainment and beautiful literature. Paul didn't tell the Philippians what exactly those things are. Neither am I. But as a congregation, when we come together... We are to think about such things as that. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, let's encourage each other to think about such things. 
And Paul also, he tells him to think about certain things. He tells him to live according to a certain pattern. And he's done this throughout the letter. Paul was sent by God to pass on the teachings and the truths of Jesus Christ. Not only that, but by the grace of God, Paul lived that when he was among the Philippians. All the things that I've passed on to you through word or deed, Paul is saying, put it into practice. Let your hands and your feet work out what your minds and your hearts have received. Taking in good things, good doctrines and teachings and godly examples is not the end of the story. These things must flow out into our lives. And here I want to come back to the beginning when we're talking about unity in the church. We cannot merely assent to the unity of the church. We can't merely say, yes, I believe in one holy Catholic Christian church. We have to put it into practice. And that means that we have to work out our issues together as brothers and sisters, as mothers and children, as fathers and children, as friends. Not only should we let no bitter root grow up among us, but let us, by the Holy Spirit, grow in our communal joy, gentleness, prayer, thoughts, and deeds. In short, pursue peace. And do it in the full knowledge and assurance of what Paul says at the end of verse 9, and the God of peace will be with you. As you put into the, into practice the deep things of God, as you struggle against the tensions and strains and hurts in your relationships, don't worry because the Lord is near. The God of peace who is reconciling the world to himself, who has made peace through the blood of his son Jesus Christ, will help you. As you are a peacemaker, you have the support of the ultimate peacemaker, Jesus Christ. As we strive to make real the unity of the church that Jesus Christ has made possible, remember that this unity is grounded in Christ. And that greater reality that He has made possible. Our unity is grounded in what Christ has done, which is this. The God of peace will be with you. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.